Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast recording of the Old Testament. Although this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort's been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. I'll be using for the text the Joseph Smith translation of the Old Testament, along with many commentaries from general authorities of the Church, BYU professors, Bible scholars, and others. This format will be very detailed, and so if you want a deep analysis of the Old Testament, you come to the right place. Thanks for your attendance. Hi, and welcome back to the Old Testament podcast. This will be for Numbers chapter 20. Alrighty. Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month, and the people abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died there, and was buried there. Kadesh is the place where the spies were sent from, so we have come full circle back to the place of their rebellion. Now they are ready to enter the promised land. And there was no water for the congregation, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chode, or contended with Moses, and spake, saying, Would God that we had died with our brethren, died before the Lord? And why have ye brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our cattle should die there? And wherefore have ye made us to come up out of Egypt, to bring us in unto this evil place? It is no place of seed, or of figs, or of vines, or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly into the, under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, or, and they fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water. And thou shalt bring forth to them water out of, out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord, as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Here now, ye rebels, must, ye, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not, or i.e. in not speaking to the rock, striking it instead, to sanctify me in the eyes of the congregation of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Rebellion among the children of Israel was not at all uncommon in their desert wanderings. The rebellion described in these verses, however, was especially serious because it apparently led Moses, the prophet of God, to momentarily forget what the Lord had commanded him to do. The Lord had told Moses, to provide water for murmuring Israel in a special way. Pointing out a certain rock, the Lord told Moses, Speak ye unto the rock before there is before Israel's eyes, and it shall give forth his water. But Moses was weary and angry with Israel. Hear now, ye rebels, he said, must we fetch you water out of this rock? Then instead of speaking to the rock as God commanded, Moses smote the rock twice, and water gushed forth. The Lord then chided Moses and Aaron for their failure to sanctify him in the eyes of the people and told both men that neither of them would be allowed to bring Israel into the promised land. Not only did they not follow the Lord's instructions carefully, but they are suggested but they also suggested by the use of what what they by the use of we, that they were the ones who provided the water. This incident, taken together with other scripture, creates a number of questions. 
Did Moses really sin against the Lord? Was that the reason Moses was not permitted to enter the promised land? Did Moses really assume glory to himself, or was he simply angry with the lack of faith exhibited by the children of Israel? Was this one error enough to cancel out years of great faith, obedience, and devotion? At least two other Old Testament passages indicate that Moses did sin in striking the rock at Meribah. Other passages, however, help to clarify the matter. Deuteronomy 3 and 4 indicate that the Lord told Moses that the reason he could not enter the promised land was that the Lord was angry with him for your sakes. This statement could imply that there were reasons other than the error of Moses for the prohibition. Two other facts strengthen this supposition. First, both Moses and the higher priesthood were taken from Israel because of the people's unworthiness, not Moses's. Second, Moses was translated when his mortal ministry was finished. In other words, Moses was privileged to enter a land of promise far greater than the, than the land of Canaan. He had finished his calling in mortality, and a new leader was to take Israel into the promised land. And Moses was translated, hardly a punishment for sinning against God. And that was out of the Institute Manual. Verse 13. This is the water of Meribah, or quarrel, or strife, or contention, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. And Moses sent messengers from Kadesh unto the king of Edom. Thus saith thy brother Israel, Thou knowest all the travail that hath befallen us. Moses referred to his people as, as brother Israel when he addressed the king of the Edomites, because the Edomites were direct descendants of Edom, Esau, the brother of, of Jacob, Israel, from whom the Israelites descended. There, there was therefore a blood relationship between the two peoples. The things that Moses said simply that the Edomite king was well aware of the relationship, still he refused to let the Israelites pass through his lands. Between the rebellion of Korah and the request and the request for passage through the land of Edom, 38 years of wandering had transpired. For reasons not known to us now, Moses did not describe those years in this record. That was out of the Institute Manual. Verse 15. How our fathers went down into Egypt, and we have dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians vexed us and our fathers. And when we cried unto the Lord, we heard he heard our voice, and sent an angel, and hath brought us forth out of Egypt. And behold, we are in Kadesh, a city in the uttermost of thy brother, or of thy border. Let us pass, I pray thee, through through thy country, and we will not pass through the fields or through the vineyards, neither will we drink of the water of the wells. We go we will go by the king's highway. We will not turn to the right hand nor to the left until we have passed thy borders. And Edom said unto him, Thou shalt not pass by me. Uh, the Hebrew is through me, i.e. through my land, lest I come out against thee with the, with the sword. And the children of Israel said unto him, We will go by the highway, and if I and my cattle drink of, the, of thy water, then I will pay for it. I will only, without doing anything else, go through on my foot or on my feet. And he said, Thou shalt not go through. And Edom came out against him with much people and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border. Wherefore Israel turned away from him, and the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came unto Mount, uh, Mount Hor. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in, the, in Mount Hor by the coast, or border of the land of Edom, and saying, Aaron shall be gathered unto his people, for he shall not enter into the land which I have given unto the children of Israel, because ye rebelled against my word at the, at the water of Meribah. This was, in effect, depriving him of his office and putting his clothes on his son Eleazar implied a transfer of that office to him. 
a transfer of office from this circumstance is, is putting the clothes of the late possessor on the person intended to succeed him was called investing or investment. Clothing, as removing a person from an office, was, was termed divesting or unclothing. The same custom continues to this day in some institutions when an officer is installed or removed from office. Ceremonial clothing is either put on or taken off, symbolizing a transfer of authority. When one deports a dishonor or in de, when, when one departs in dishonor, he is literally stripped of his gown or robes. In the military, the, the cutting off of one's epaulets or insignia of rank is the same thing. Aaron, however, was not retiring in dishonor or disgrace. His death, um, his death was imminent, and it was time for new and younger leadership. And that was out of the Institute Manual. Take, uh, 26. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son, and bring them up unto Mount Hor, and strip Aaron of his garments, and put them upon Eleazar his, his son. And Aaron shall be gathered unto his people, and shall die there. And Moses did as the Lord commanded, and they went up into the Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. And Moses stripped Aaron of his, of his garments, and put them upon Eleazar and his son, his son. And Aaron died there in the top of the mount, and Moses and Eleazar came down from the mount. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, they mourned for Aaron thirty days, even as the even all the house of Israel. All right, I'm going to read a little narrative here. This is uh, the end of the chapter, but I just wanted to read a little bit of an explanation here of what's going on. This is uh, sometimes it gets a little confusing, and it helps to have a narrative. These are by uh, Alfred Edersheim, who I said at the beginning of the podcast is just an amazing Bible scholar, even though not not a member of our church. He's really really good. Quoted by many general authorities, too. Okay. Um, It was indeed most fitting that at the end of the 37 years' wanderings, Israel should once more gather at Kadesh, where uh, there they had been scattered when the evil report which the spies had brought led to their unbelief and rebellion, and thence had the old generation carried, as it were, its sentence of death back into the wilderness, till during these long and weary years its full terms had been exhausted. And now a new generation was once more at Kadesh, from the very spot where the old was broken off was the fresh start to be made. God is faithful to his purpose, he never breaks off. If the old was interrupted, it had been by man's unbelief and rebellion, not by failure on the part of God. And when he resumed his work, it was exactly where it had been so broken off. And man also must return to where he has departed from God, and to where sentence has been pronounced against him, before he enters on his new journey to the land of promise. But what solemn thoughts might not have been expected in this new generation as they once more stood ready to resume their journeyings on the spot where that of their fathers had been arrested. As he had sanctified his name in Kadesh by judgment, would they now sanctify it by their faith and willing obedience? Besides besides Joshua and Caleb, to whom entrance into the land had been specially promised, only three of the old generation still remained. These were Miriam, Moses, and Aaron. And now, just at the commencement of this fresh start, as if the more solemnly to remind them of the past, Miriam, who had led the hymn of thanksgiving and triumph on their first entering the the desert, was taken away uh, was taken away. Only Moses and Aaron were now left, weary, wayworn pilgrims to begin a new journey with new pilgrims who had a, who had to learn afresh the dealings of Jehovah and this may help us to understand was was happened at the very outset of their pilgrimage Israel was in Kadesh or rather in the in the desert of Zin and Na- 
of Zin, the name Kadesh, applying probably to the whole district as well as to a special locality. So large a number of people gathered in one place would naturally soon suffer from the want of water. Let it also be remembered that 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 generation knew of the wonders of the Lord, chiefly by the hearing of the ear, but of his judgments by what they had seen of death sweeping away all who had come out of Egypt. In the hardness of their hearts, it now seemed to them as if the prospect before them were, were hopeless, and they destined to suffer the same fate as their fathers. Something of this unbelieving despair appears in their cry, Would God that we had died when, we, when our brethren died before Jehovah, that is, by divine judgment, during these years of wandering. The remembrance of the past with its disappointments seemed to find expression in their, in their complaints. It is as if they contrasted the stay of their nation in Egypt and the hopes awakened on leaving it with the disappointment of seeing the good land almost within their grasp and then being turned back to die in the wilderness. And so the people brought forth, broke forth in rebellion against Moses and against Aaron. Feelings similar to theirs seem to have taken hold even on Moses and Aaron, only in a different direction. The people despaired of success and rebelled against Moses and Aaron. With them, as leaders, they would never get possession of the land of, pal- of promise. On the other hand, Moses and Aaron, who, dis- who, dis- who despaired of success and rebelled, as it were, against the people, such an unbelieving people rebelling at the very outset would never be allowed to enter the land. The people felt as if the prospect before them were hopeless, and so did Moses and Aaron, although on opposite grounds. As we have said, the people rebelled against Moses and Aaron, and Moses and Aaron against the people. But at bottom, the ground of despair and of rebellion, both on the part of the people and of Moses, was precisely the same. In both cases, it was really unbelief of God. The people had looked upon Moses and not upon God as their leader into the land, and they had despaired. Moses looked at the people as they were in themselves, instead of thinking of God who now sent them forward, secure in his promise, which he would assuredly fulfill. This soon appeared in the conduct of the language and language of Moses. By divine direction, he was to stand in sight of the people at the rock before their eyes with the rod from before Jehovah, no doubt the same with which the miracles had been wrought in Egypt, and under whose stroke water had once before sprung from the rock at Rephidim. It is generally thought that the sin of Moses in which Aaron shared consisted in his striking the rock and doing so twice, Instead of merely speaking to it, and it shall give forth its water, and also in the in the hasty and improper language which he used on the occasion, here now, ye rebels, most must must we fetch you water out of this rock, but it seems difficult to accept this view on the one hand, we can scarcely imagine that unbelief should have led Moses to strike rather than to speak to the rock as if the former would have been more efficacious than the than the latter. On the other hand, it seems strange that Moses should have been directed to take the rod if he were not to have used it, the more so as this had been the divinely sanctioned mode of proceeding in Rephidim. Lastly, or lastly, how in that case could Aaron have been implicated in the, in the sin of Moses? Of course, the striking the rock twice was, as we read in Psalms 106, 32, and 33, evidence that they had angered Moses and that his spirit was provoked. This also showed himself in his language, which scripture this thus characterizes. He spoke, he spake in, he spake unadvisedly with his lips, or as the word literally means, he babbled like I'm doing right now. Be it observed that Moses is not anywhere in Scripture blamed for striking instead of speaking to the rock. 
while it is expressly stated that the people angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses for their sakes. The other aspect of, of the sin of Moses was afterwards expressly stated by the Lord himself when he pronounced on Moses and Aaron the sentence that they should not bring this congregation into the land which he had given them on this ground, because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Thus, in their rebellion against Moses and Aaron, the people had not believed that Jehovah would bring them into the land which he had given them. While in their anger at the people, Moses and Aaron had not believed God to sanctify him in his power and grace in the eyes of the children of Israel. Israel failed at, at, as, as the whoops, Israel failed as the people of God. Moses as their mediator. Hitherto Moses had under every provocation been faithful as a steward over his charge and pleaded with God that and prevailed because he believed. Now for the first time Moses failed, as we all fail through unbelief, looking at the sin of the people, and thence inferring the impossibility of their inheriting the promises made or the promises instead of looking at the grace and power of God which made all things possible, and at the center and at the certainty of the promise, unlike Abraham in similar circumstances, he staggered at the promises, and having through unbelief failed as mediator of the people, his office was to cease and the conduct of Israel into the land to devolve upon another. It is only in this sense that we can accept the common statement that the sin of Moses was official rather than personal. For these two, office or work and and person cannot be separated either as regards responsibility or duty. Rather, would we think of Moses and Aaron as aged pilgrims, worn with the king, with the with the long way through the wilderness and footsore with its roughness and stones, whose strength momentarily failed when the weary journey was once more resumed, and who in their weariness stumbled at the rock of offense. Yet few events possess deeper pathos than this babbling at the waters of Meribah. Its true parallel is found not in the Old but in the New Testament. It is true that in similar circumstances, Elijah also despaired of Israel and was directed to the, Mo- to the Mount of God, there to learn the same lesson as Moses before, like him, he was unclothed in his office. But the full counterpart of the temptation of Moses is, is presented in the, in the history of John the Baptist, when doubting not the person but the mode of working of, of the Messiah and despairing from what he saw and heard of the fulfillment of the promise of that time, and among that generation he sent his disciples on that memorable embassy just before he also was unclothed of his office. This is not the place to follow the subject further. Suffice it to point out, on the one hand, Moses, Elijah, John the Baptist, and on the other, Joshua, Elisha, and our blessed Lord, as the types and antitypes presented to us in Scripture. Before leaving Kadesh, Moses sent messengers to the king of Edom and also, as we learn from Judges, to the king of Moab, whose dominion lay on the north by Edom, asking permission for Israel to pass through their their countries. A glance at the map will show that this would have been the most direct route if Palestine was to be entered from the other side, Jordan, at Jericho. Certainly it was the easiest route, as it avoided contact with those who held the Negeb, or South Country, who 37 years before had met Israel in hostile conflict, 
conflict and signally defeated them. But in vain, Moses urged even uh, urged upon Edom the claim of national kinship. Israel's past sufferings in Egypt and their marvelous deliverance and guidance by the angel of Jehovah. In vain also did he limit his request to permission to use the ordinary caravan road, the king's highway, without straying either to the right or to the left. Adding the promise of payment for the use of the wells, the children of Israel or the children of Esau not only oops. The children of Esau not only absolutely refused, but hastily gathered an army of observation on their borders. Meantime, while the messengers of Moses had gone on their embassy, the camp of Israel had moved forward to what may be described as the uttermost of the border of Edom, a day's journey eastward from Kadesh through the wide and broad wadi Merah. Suddenly rises a remarkable mountain quite isolated and prominent, which Canaan, William, uh, which Canon Williams describes as singularly formed and the late Professor Robinson likens to a lofty citadel. Its present name, Mat Medora, preserves the ancient biblical Mosera, from which form a comparison of Numbers 20 to 20, 22 to 29 with Deuteronomy 10.6. We know to have been only as another designation for Mount Hor. In fact, Mount Hor, or Hor, Hor, mountain the mountain, just means the remarkable mountain. This was the natural route for Israel to take if they hoped to pass through Edom by the king's highway. The present Wadi Guir, which would have led them by by way of Moab, easily and straight to the other side of Jordan, it was natural for them here to halt and await the reply of the king of Edom. For while Modera lies at the very boundary, but still outside Edom, it is also at the entrance to the various wadis or roads, which thence open east, south, and southeast, or southwest, so that the children of Israel might thence take a take any route which circumstance with circumstances would indicate. Moreover, from the height of Modera, Modera, they would be able to observe any hostile movement that might be directed against them, whether for the whether from the east by Edom or from the north and west by the Amalekites and Canaanites, from which, from what has been said, it will be gathered that we regard this as the Mount Hor, where Aaron died. Thus, speedily, within a day's journey of the place of his sin, was the divine sentence upon Aaron executed. There is a solemn grandeur about this narrative, befitting the occasion and in accordance with the locality. In the sight of all the congregation, these three, Moses, Aaron, and Eleazar, went up the mount. In his full priestly dress walked Aaron to his burial. He knew it, and so did all in that camp, who now, for the last time, reverently and silently looked upon the venerable figure of him who, for these forty years, had ministered unto them in holy things. There was no farewell in that typical priesthood. All depended on the unbroken continuance of the office, not of the person. And hence, on that mountaintop, Aaron was first unclothed of his priestly robes, and Eleazar his son formally invested with them. Thus the priesthood had not for a moment ceased when Aaron died, then not as a priest, but simply as one of God's Israel was he gathered unto his people. But over that which passed between the three on the mount was the hand of God drawn the veil of silence. And so the new priest, Eleazar, came down from the solemn scene on Mount Hor to minister amidst a hushed and awe-stricken congregation. And when all the congregation saw that Moses was dead, or that Aaron was dead, they murmured, or they mourned for Aaron, 
thirty days, even all the house of Israel. Serious tidings were now in store for Israel. The messengers returned from Edom, bringing absolute refusal of the request of passage through that country. Not only so, but the large army of Edom was assembling on the frontier, close to the camping ground of Israel. If, according to the divine command, Edom was not to be attacked, then Israel must rapidly retreat. The ordinary route from Mount Hor to compass the land of Edom, so as to advance northwards by the east of Edom, would have led Israel straight down by the Wadi El-Jeb, and so through a northern part of the Areba. But this route touched the western boundary of Edom, touching the western western boundary of, of Edom, just where, as we gather from the scriptural narrative, the army of Edom was was echeloned. To avoid them, it, it, it became therefore necessary in the first place to retrace their steps again through part of the Wadi Murrah, in order thence to strike in a southeasterly direction through what are now known as the mountains of the Azizameh, the ancient dukedom of Teman or Mount Paran. By this detour, Israel would strike the Arabah far south of where the army of Edom awaited them, passing through the modern wadis. In point of fact, we learn from Deuteronomy 10.7 that Gudgoda and Jotboth were the two stations. I wonder where they come up with these names from. Reached next after the retreat from Mount Hor, but just at the point where the host of Israel would turn southwards from Wadi Merah. They were also in almost a straight line for the territory of the king of Arad. Of course, he would be informed that Israel had been refused a passage through Edom, and finding them on the flank of his territory would naturally imagine that they intended to invade it. And the Canaanitish king of Arad, which dwelt in the Negeb, or south country, heard tell that Israel came by the way of the spies, or more probably, the way of the merchants, the caravan road, then he fought against Israel and took of them prisoners, having probably fallen on their rearguard. The event is mentioned for this twofold reason, to show the, unimp- the unprovoked enemy of Canaan against Israel and the faithfulness of God. For Israel at that time vowed a vow utterly to destroy the cities of the Canaanites, and God hearkened and heard. Many years afterwards, he gave the, prayer- the prayed-for victory when the name of Hormah, or ban utter destruction, given in prophetic anticipation of God's faithfulness, became a reality. Some commentators imagine that even at the first, a great victory had been gained by the Israelites over the Canaanites, but the opposition is incompatible alike with the narrative and with other portions of Scripture. That was all by Alfred Edersheim. Anyway, that's the end of the chapter. See you next time. That was kind of long, wasn't it? Sorry.